Hello. Good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Bagging a Book Deal, um, alternatively entitled Everything You Wanted to Know About License, license Publishing, but were too embarrassed to ask. Um, uh, for the purposes of this conversation, um, we will describe license publishing as everything that isn't coming or is an alternative to author publishing. This is publishing that has come from uh, uh, another IP with a media platform, film, television, computer games, whatever it is, that uh, has been brought to the attention of a publisher um, and they see some opportunities for essentially making money out of it. Um, this will be more of a reality check about the licensed publishing market. Um, it will give you clues and tips as to what you need to do in terms of pitching, uh, but will be very much a this is how it is in the publishing world. Um, and uh, will prove, unfortunately, as challenging as the animation industry or any other industry in terms of you trying to secure that book deal. Uh, we have a fantastic panel. Um, are people who are working in publishing, people who've worked for publishers, people who've secured licensed books deal, people who help people with IP get uh, licensed sort of publishing deals. Um, so uh, hopefully you'll go away wiser. We'll do questions at the end, it'll be 10 minutes, so please make notes if you want to ask a question. Uh, and I will do my best to interrogate the panel to get as much information out of them as you could possibly wish for. Um, so we will begin with um, introductions. Do you have a slide to tell people who we've got? Okay, we'll start at this end. Uh, Karen, 90 seconds. Who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? Hi, everyone. I'm Karen. I run a publishing consultancy called Speckled Pen. Um, I've worked in children's publishing for about 25 years, and in my current iteration, I do a lot of creative work helping publishers and license owners um, develop concepts and write brainstorms and storylines. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very part of the creative <coughs> sector. Okay, Angus. Mm -hmm. I'm Angus Killick. I'm the associate publisher of Macmillan Children's Publishing Group in New York. And uh, I've been in publishing for uh, 30 years. 25 in kids. Once I found my way into kids, I never looked back. I've been at Macmillan for 10 years. My job is pretty expansive. It includes everything from being on the acquisitions and executive team to um, running managing editorial to uh, we have a nascent licensing business for IP properties that we um, wholly own at the company. Uh, I also manage the relationships with some of the licensors that we uh, publish, such as uh, Sanrio, which would be Hello Kitty, uh, DC Comics. Um, we have a broad range of licensed publishing. Um, uh, sometimes it's one book, sometimes it's a, a whole series of books. Um, and so, what else? That'll do. Keeps That's me busy. Keeps you busy. And I love it. That's why I do it. Okay. Well, good answer. <laughs> Emma, the end why do you love what you do? And what do you do? <laughs> what do I do? So I'm Emma Karen smith I'm head of global acquisitions for Egmont. For those of you who don't know who Egmont is, we're the largest publisher of children's book and magazines in Europe. We have offices in 20 territories and an international team that sell to everywhere else. Um, Egmont's a children's charitable foundation. We've given over 135 million to children's charities so far. And that's partly why I love working for Egmont. <laughs> um, part of the research that we do shows that a child's future prospects are dramatically improved by good reading. So a lot of what we do is about trying to get kids reading at all. So for me, licensing is central to that. And 60% of what Egmont does is licensing across book and ma magazines. Personally, I've been responsible in the last sort of five years for acquiring various different IPs for Egmont, um, Minecraft, Roblox, Halo on the gaming side. <laughs> on the film side, Star Wars, Jurassic World. On the toy side, My Little Pony, Rubik's, a bit of a random one. Uh, on the TV side, Teletubbies and Becca's Bunch, which is about to launch on Nickelodeon. And many, many more. Well, okay, thank you. Ingrid. Uh, so I've been working in publishing 30 plus years. <laughs> um, I didn't get my most of the most of my career has been as MD of large publishing companies in the UK. Read Children's Books, which is now effectively what Egmont is based on, um, and most recently Simon and Schuster in the UK. Um, but I also spent some time at HIT and Ghislaine, so entertainment companies kind of being responsible for IP from the other side. Um, and the whole 
crossover between media and books it has always interested me um, throughout my career. I am now working as a consultant. I'm helping, uh, I'll do almost anything, but, <laughs> but I'm helping people with IP try to find publishing deals and indeed helping publishers to make the most out of the IP that they own. Um, and I just love books and reading, and that's why I do what I do. Okay, that works for me. Josh, have you been in the industry 30 years? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lucky you. Six okay. months. Six months. No, oh, so, um, yeah, so I'm Josh, and I'm the creator and managing director of Night Zookeeper, which is an education technology company that I've been building up over the last six years. Uh, we have a creative writing platform, which... Uh, inspires children to write through creativity, drawing, reading, and then writing their own ideas as part of our online community and using all of their amazing imaginations to, to bring magical animals to life inside the night zoo. Um, so that's been um, the last six years of my life working in schools, very grassroots um, here in the UK and then through our digital platform spreading out around the world to empower teachers to teach creatively in a sometimes not the most creative of curriculums. Excellent. Okay. Uh, let's start by establishing um, how, big, not th how big the market is in terms of sort of like volume. Uh, so, Angus, I'm going to come to you first. In okay. terms of Macmillan, how many books a year in kids are Macmillan publishing? And what percentage of that is going to be licensed versus mm. author-driven, roughly speaking? So, of all the major publishers, Macmillan is, uh, probably has the smallest licensed publishing uh, division. Okay. Um, However, we recently started a new imprint called Imprint with a capital I, <laughs> which seems appropriate because when you're publishing licensed properties, the last thing anyone cares about is the name of the imprint. This is true. Um, and the remit of the new imprint is to seek out new properties that are on the rise and uh, partner with the IP holders and um, sort of come first to market with something. Uh, in the hopes that that will become a hit and we'll all make a lot of money down the road. Uh, and the person who's running it is a woman called Erin Stein. She's the editorial director. And uh, she has had quite a bit of success at uh, Little Brown, Hachette. And we stole her for our shop to do it for us. So um, she's been there two years and uh, she's uh, sniffing things out for us uh, right now, okay. which is great. Um, so, meanwhile, back yes. to the question. The question um, was the size. So, What is she competing against internally? Because she's starting a new division called Imprint, etc. So you've got a whole bunch of fiction or editors, etc. Yes. Who are very keen that your sales team sell their titles and not necessarily licensed so, titles. How many li original titles are you putting out? What's the volume from Macmillan? From Macmillan? Yeah. We're about um, 600 titles a year. Okay. Probably the smallest of the big five publishers. Everyone else is publishing in excess of 700 titles a year. But I have to qualify that a little bit. A, a large portion of our publishing is paperback reprints. So uh, probably 25% of the output is reprints of books that were published originally in hardcover, which is different from the UK market, of course. And we're putting out a paperback. Um, the figures that you yep. quoted, um, are they they're US based or are they Macmillan? They're US based. They're US based. Correct. Okay. M M Macmillan in the UK is a much smaller um, operation with maybe quarter of the output, if that. Smaller than that, I would think. Ingrid, yeah. what's your take on how many, on average, the big six publishers, new titles coming out per I think, year? I think it's gone down over the years. Okay. Uh, back in the day, it used to be 25% or something of our, and uh, that might be true at Egmont, which mm. I think is a, a bit exceptional, or Centum, or the people that are only doing that kind of thing. 25% was was licensed publishing, okay. but I think in in the most recent years, actually, at Simon & Schuster, we probably reduced it to 15%. Okay. Um, because you found you got the same sales out of a smaller group of titles, that, that the kind of the pool was finite to some degree. And in the context of original new titles coming out per year, Angus has said in the US, Macmillan are doing sort of 600. What's a UK figure? Well... Uh, most recently, as a Simon and Schuster, we did probably 120 titles a year, and you know maybe 20 of those would have been licensed signs. Okay, so if we've got five or six big publishers in the year, there's almost like you could you say we've got a thousand new titles coming out every year. Emma, 
I think that sounds about right. I mean, we looked at the figures and there's 29,000 books, children's books, published every year in the UK. Uh, that was the 2017 figure. Um, and the sales of those is 21 million units, which means that the average sale is 700 copies. If you strip out David Williams, Julia Donaldson, you and Harry Potter, and Harry Potter <laughs> the average slips considerably. So I think my message partly is a rather depressing one of there's a lot of publishing every year and our biggest challenge in children's publishing is how to get anyone to know that that book even happened. Mm. And partly why licensing is so appealing is because there is an automatic audience but there's another challenge there with how do you get the retailers to stock the books <laughs> because they have finite shelf space. So it's a challenging market. So there you go. There's a reality is that your IP is coming into a market where essentially every year there's a thousand new books that your licensed book is going to have to compete against. And within that licensed market, there's some fairly hefty brands, which we'll we will come on to. Ingrid, seeing as you're not in a big publishing now, in terms of the economic value, licensed publishing versus author-driven publishing, I know it's a very broad sort of delineation, is when is does licensing help support the author-driven publishing because it has that power to go bigger, faster, spectacular? What kind of ratio do you think in terms of revenue earning licenses to sort of author-driven? You mean as a publisher having a list, yeah. the mix? Well, I think having the mix on the list is is very beneficial because you're putting eggs in every basket and all the retailers are um, have their own kind of specialities and things that they don't touch and so on. Uh, the thing is, if you could, if you get the licensed publishing right, um, I bought Despicable Me 2 tie-ins for £3,000 uh, because I liked the trailer and nobody else was interested. We made... Hundreds shed of, of shed loads of money out of that. Um, but there have been some things that we won't talk about where I spent a lot of money. <laughs> and well, we didn't make those. shed loads of money. But, you know, the ones that do make shed loads of money do allow you to publish that lovely literary novel that you know is only going to sell 700 copies, but it might win a prize and the author might, five books on down the line, be a big star. Um, so it's about the balance. And, you know, if you are in a company where they let you just worry about the final number on the bottom line without kind of forcing you to make everything profitable, um, well, then you're in a lucky position and you can um, do those kind of uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Right. I think the other, the other thing that plays into this is backlist. So if you have a really strong, robust backlist, yes, it provides you with a, a revenue, revenue source to experiment yeah. on the front list. And um, a backlist could be 60% yeah. of your sales. Yeah, Karen, do you want to? Yeah. If only. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, but it used to be. But yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that, again, is one of the sales challenges, isn't it? Yeah. Is mm -hmm. that trying to get your sales team to constantly push the backlist. Yeah. Because that is where the profit is. Um, just, yeah, sorry, just to add to that, when I was at Little Brown, we were setting up a brand new children's imprint, so we had no backlist. And actually, licensed publishing was a key part of getting that off the ground. Because we had a couple of licensed projects from Mattel that were just selling and selling and selling. And so that was bringing in the money so that we could do, do the, li the list building, as, as, yeah. you know, as Ingrid has said, and investing in that's like quite a novel that you felt really passionate about. So, yeah, I, mm. I agree. Okay. Um, let's move on to, in both the UK and the US, we'll come to the UA, UK first. Who are the primary customers for licensed publishing? Is this just essentially now a supermarket play, Emma? So I would say Amazon is becoming incredibly important for us because of the discoverability. Okay. Is a lot of the parents out there with children enjoying a particular TV show, if they just walk into their local Asda, the chances of them finding that book are fairly slim. I mean, I had a chat with the buyer at Asda the other day and he was sort of saying he takes only around 40 new, 40 licensed titles a year. 40. So by the time you've taken out Star Wars, Pepper Pig, there is absolutely no room for that buyer to say, I know I'm going to experiment on that TV show that I've never heard of, but I believe someone is watching. Is that outside of holiday? Outside of holiday, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, the customer base is, is very small and their shelf spaces are getting smaller and smaller as they are pushed to make more and more revenue from their shelf space. So Amazon, in fact, is one of the great doorways because they don't have that issue. They 
take so much across such a wide area that it gives you a chance to build a brand up. So can you, would you then be able to leverage success on Amazon back into a Tesco and Asda? Yes, absolutely. So we, we had with Minecraft, when we first published Minecraft, no one was remotely interested in stocking those books. And the only people who took it in the beginning was Amazon. And then they had these monumental sales. And suddenly, I, mean, I remember having a conversation with Tesco where they were saying, we're not interested in stocking it. And then we managed to find out through through somebody that that Minecraft was the most searched for thing on Tesco that didn't come up with any results. Wow. Wow. And we contacted them and said, are you aware of this fact? And suddenly they took the books. But <laughs> Amazon's orders and the sales through Amazon, which are fairly transparent, is what made the difference. Okay. Um, just going back to the UK, so where do... Um, uh, what's the attitude for someone like Smiths or Waterstones in terms of the licensed publishing play? Assuming that the, customer, the supermarkets eventually get it, because maybe you've done well enough, etc. Where Because there aren't that many places on the high street that you can buy books. So what's kind of a WH Smith position on license sort of like titles? And equally, where do Waterstones stand? Because they're clearly at a, in a different space and in some ways are holding up the UK publishing industry. They went with the well, trouble. I'd say that Waterstones and WH Smith are completely different. So Waterstones is a real struggle because they are increasingly taking a position, rightly or wrongly, of they only really want to take licensing that they consider publishing licensing. So they'll look at things like Thomas, Mr. Men, Beatrix Potter, but they don't really, I mean, they didn't stock PJ Masks, for example, which is the big hit TV show of the moment. That was the new launch that is successful. Warstones didn't stock that at all. So... They tend to be very safe. They do stock Pepper, which is a proper TV property, years. but it's taken them years to decide that that is of a okay. quality <laughs> that they are happy right. to have. Yeah. So Waterstones is a pretty closed book on licensing. WH Smith is more open, but it's a bit arbitrary as to what, what floats their boat and what doesn't. And they're also in trouble financially. So they're not someone you'd cling on to as your lifeline. Right. Do you, do you have to buy space at WH Smith? Yes. We spend a yeah. huge yes. amount challenge. of money buying space. Well, all the publishers have to pay for the shelf space. Well, it's supermarkets, yeah. all kinds of places, yeah. mm. and indirectly mm. at Waterstones. Mm. Yes. <laughs> As well. And, and then they don't turn over inventory. Well, then they return you. the books. Only. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> okay, sorry. Yes, Who would get be in really publishing? Yeah. <laughs> Down and dirty with publishers. Yeah. Meet these guys at the bar and they'll tell you about the well, there, are, there are a lot of similarities in the States as yeah. well. And I would say also that Amazon um, definitely leads the way because uh, it can offer everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and also something that I learned fairly recently is that we as publishers or licensed IP holders can create our own stores in Amazon. Yeah, we have. Which is really amazing because you administer it yourself and you can connect your books with also your merchandise or your... Uh, DVDs or um, electronic versions of movies or TV shows or whatever it might be. Uh, and I also really think Amazon is doing a job that, unfortunately, some booksellers are not doing, which is the advisory role. If you've bought this, have you thought about this? Mm. For a lot of people, going into a bookshop is, is a very difficult process. You know, you have to know what the author's name was of that book. And that, for a lot of people, is not something they know. So the bookshops are not good at going, well, if you like this, try this. So that's why people just keep buying David Williams. It's the only thing they've heard of. <laughs> and, we, and I think they don't do a very good job of that, whereas Amazon are doing that. And I think it's a real lesson to the book industry and, the pub, and, and Warstones and bookshops is to be more open to their consumers coming in. And I think for anybody in the audience who's researching their own idea or license or brand and where it sits in the market and what the context is, Amazon should definitely be your research tool for exactly those reasons, that as soon as you start keying in similar titles, you'll start to see what else is out there. And, and what the ballpark is creatively yeah, and commercially yeah, for something that you're... Yeah, yeah. and if there's, if, if there's credence behind what you're proposing, are there other books out there that are selling well? Okay. Um, so given that state, and I'm assuming that the US is, is comparable to what's going on in yeah, the UK. Yeah, I mean, we have different retailers. Yeah, Barnes & Nobles and sort of... You Barnes & Nobles is very sim similar to Waterstones, have a limited um, 
space for licensed publishing, and they tend to sort of focus on the big releases that are coming out. They'll do displays for things like Wrinkle in Time when the movie's out, and then um, it'll be sort of like a season in, and then it'll disappear. Uh, anything with longevity, you know, it'll find a place on the shelves, but most of the stuff sweeps in and sweeps out pretty quickly. Okay. How is all of that then affecting your um, your license or acquisition sort of like process? I mean, is there just this massive filter that ever so politely means it's kind of like no, 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 because as there only take forty titles, and if it's not Star Wars, then you're down to that one or shot. How how do people here? come up with something or what is it that is going to make you sort of lean forward because your sales teams if it's not you you know are going when you're pitching something that maybe you're passionate about you've got to push some buttons for them to say guys look we've got a chance what kind of stuff you know so i mean ingrid and i were talking about this earlier um one of my kind of things that i always hold on to is having to have somebody in my company that's passionate about that project so it could be me or it could be a a publisher or it could be someone from the sales team but when I pitch it into the rest of the organization I need to find somebody who genuinely loves it and if everyone is oh it's quite nice I just don't buy it because it, we've got to have somebody who will put their hand on their heart and cry in a meeting <laughs> so that people will get behind it because there is a lot out there and you need the passion for the project to drive all the way through so you have to love it. You have to also accept as a company, and, and we have this conversation a lot at Egmont, if you're not bringing in the new, then you're sitting on a declining business. So you have to be out looking for new things and bringing new things in, and you have to take risks, and you have to accept failure, and the failure rate is high. And then it's about managing your failure, and it's about not offering ridiculous amounts of money for the licenses in the first place. We are really mean. We do not offer big guarantees. Our piece of the puzzle is we'll get you into the store. We will do everything we can to make incredible books, but we don't offer you a ton of money up front as well. Ingrid, was that your experience, passion and limit your risk? Well, passionate, absolutely. Um, and uh, I think that's, you know, that is the most important thing when, you know, because people were coming in and pitching all kinds of stuff um, over the years. And... You, you just had to feel that it was, whatever it was, was special and had some chance of taking off. I mean, I, the, apart from Despicable Me Too, which wasn't quite a passion piece, but opportunistic, Octonauts was probably the last one that, but Simon Schuster, I absolutely fell in love with when I saw that thing. I thought, this is different. I love this. I would have loved this as a child. I have to have this. Um, and then you have to rally, you know, your team round <laughs> and, and make sure that, you know, there's enough people to, to kind of support that. Um, and, um, and, and not go for too many. Right. Okay. Um, one thing I just want to recap, flashback a bit is, um, Karen, who would you regard in the UK as the major players in licensed publishing for the audience? Who are the companies who are the top five or six who are actually in that game actively, notwithstanding how difficult it is? Um, so, UK publishers? Yeah. Um, well, Egmont, obviously, Hachette now have a dedicated license, director Katie Price. Um, Harper Collins, are they in the Pop space? Not really. Mm, not really. Uh, I mean, they do Bing, they do, and Paddington, but okay. it's more classic yeah. stuff. Penguin Random House? Yes. Clearly. Yeah. But then there's the people like Centum who only do licensed publishing. Okay. Um, who are very strong in the quick in and out stuff, very opportunistic and fleet of foot. Um, and just this week it was announced John Styring is um, starting up a new publishing, Paragon, as Paragon goes to the wall, um, this new publishing company called Imagine. What's it called? Creative... Imagination? Yeah, well, whatever. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they just, it, you know, came out two days ago, this announcement. So the, he's the man who founded Igloo, who now is... So, but this is the real yeah. mass market, you know, color sticker, yeah. all very um, uh, commercial types of things. And who else is there? Bonnier kind of getting into it. Scholastic do a bit of it, but only really when they do it with the U.S., um, Anybody else? Who is you? A pretty tough time. Too. Who are you competing against, Emma? Do you think? 
So it's 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 difficult to say really because it depends on the project. Um, Hachette for sure. Uh, penguins seem to have a very quiet patch, but they seem to be coming back a little bit now. Harpers not so much. Centum is the one who is constantly out there just buying everything that moves. Um, it's slightly different from how we operate because we are very much only I only aim to acquire two or three things, maybe four across book and magazines a year. And it's about bedding those in and keeping the relationships of the existing brands solid because, you know, we're no good if we don't get renewed. So it's all about that for us as well. But Centum sort of is buying a lot, so it's okay. a different approach. So they're spread betting more, go big? Yeah. Okay. Um, which brings us on to Josh, who has been listening to this, because uh, Josh actually has uh, secured a licence deal, and it's coming off something that isn't um, a big TV platform. And secondly, he's also working with a publisher that isn't one of the, the major licensed publishers. So, Josh, do you want to tell us a bit about The Night Zookeeper, if we can have the slide up, and then, uh, yeah, who you're working with, and then we'll come back to you as the discussion unfolds about the reality of engaging with somebody and how you help sell it in. So Yeah. Um, so, so this is Night Zookeeper, and as I mentioned at the beginning, it's been a six-year project to, to get this off the ground working um, in schools as a piece of education technology, and that um, is the unique angle, I guess. There are um, you know, lots of entertainment brands, games-based brands, brands like Minecraft and uh, Roblox that have obviously secured uh, licensing deals, but I think this might have been one of the first that an ed tech company has ever secured something. Um, and we did it here in the UK with Oxford University Press, um, thanks to uh, Ingrid and, and lots and lots of meetings um, with, with publishers across the UK. But um, the deal that we've, that we've done, we'll see a series of Night Zookeeper books um, being rolled out. Um, we were really keen with Night Zookeeper to start you know, if we were going to explore anything outside of education to start with books, because books is where where Night Zookeeper began. It's a story about a magical zoo full of strange animals, and we used that story um, as a teacher would at the beginning of a lesson to excite students about what they were about to do on the platform. So the book is just another tool for the teacher. We actually did a self-published version, which we were using with our schools, and um, made the decision to to try and find a publisher so that one, we could broaden the, the reach of what we were able to achieve alone as a company, but, but also to have a publisher involved in the, the creation of that book, the editing of that book, the, the, way, the form that, that that book should take in order to, to resonate the best with kids, because obviously they're the, the experts in that. So um, it took a bit of, a, bit of time, um, and as, we'll, as I'll go into, but uh, really excited to... Maybe we'll see the next slide just quickly. Um, so take all of this enthusiasm in the classroom for what was effectively a learning game and, and give kids extra excuses to, to get reading and uh, to explore a world of their imaginations. And what's unique about our book is that at the back of the book, after they've read the story, um, we publish, um, with their permission, children's stories that they've been writing on the website. And I did a, a book signing in Waterstones in Norwich the other week where one of the little authors that was featured in the back of the book sat with me and all of her <laughs> classmates <laughs> lined up to get it signed. And the dad was there, could you sign my book, please? It was, it was, it was so nice. Um, and yeah, so that, and that will be continued throughout the series. So we're going to do um, six of these. And, um, it, you know, it's um, the first one out so the kids can't be featured in the first one but they know that the next one's coming so hopefully inspiring hundreds of thousands of kids to to write more and more better stories in the hope that they'll be included in future versions show the slide of the books because you've oh, got sure. sorry there we go so that's the first three that we've um we've plotted and the first one's out and in most good bookshops because it is tough to get into bookshops um, uh, and uh, and then um, the next one's out in August and then the third one hopefully by the end of the year or if not just creeping into 2019 um, it's yet yeah, I was going to sort of jump around but it seems wrong to talk us through your journey which took you to OUP which I'm obviously not a main player in terms of license sort of publishing mm -hmm. but um without naming names too much, et cetera, what was your experience of going around, talking oh. to people, pitching the IP, and what did you learn along the way that you didn't know beforehand that you can tell these guys, et cetera? Yeah, so um, we, we were always interested. We were starting an education startup. We were you know, young 
company trying to find our way in the world and we were very excited to, to, to get out there and talk about the fact that we had this story and we were building a brand from, from scratch, really. Um, so I met with um, Penguin, then I met with Random House, then I met with Penguin Random House. I've had a few of those. You know, the full range. Uh, long conversations. There was always, you know, there was a sit up and take notice because we had, you know, we didn't have the quality of design we have now, but we did have our logo. Yeah. And we had a, a growing logo. presence yeah. in Fantastic. schools. Um, so there was always an interest. And in fact, one of the publishers that we initially spoke to wanted to invest in the company, but due to changes and all of these sorts of things, it, it didn't end up happening. Um, and in the end, we kind of just gave up a little bit and bunkered down, worked on the core business, growing more and more schools, working in the education space that we were based in until one of our, one of our investors um, introduced me to Ingrid and we thought maybe now's the chance again to, to go out and, and meet some people. So Ingrid liked what we were doing and I, as I said, at that point we had done a self-published version um, and that was a sales aid more than anything else for our education platform because teachers uh, wanted a way into the website that they were familiar with. They did book studies, they used our book. Um, and then, you know, Ingrid and me brainstormed all the places we could go. We went to, I think, quite, I a, few quite a few publishers again, um, yeah. all, you know, semi interested, but exactly the things that are being described in terms of the license. We're not, we weren't a familiar license. It's education technology. What is the impact of, of, of your reach? What, People kept saying, when's it on TV? When's it on TV? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, it, it was going to be a challenging sale. And ultimately, I, I believe that, you know, when, when Ingrid suggested OUP, it, it immediately felt right because it's an education institution. You know, it's, it's completely aligned with the ethos of our company um, obviously, they still had to like it, and thankfully, in the classic kind of author version, you, we gave our self-published title to, 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 to Liz at OUP, and she gave it to her kids, and her kids liked it, and, you know, it's a standard, um, you know, any author getting a book, book made, really, but it had this licensing engine attached to it, which hopefully made it an easier sell internally, because she was like, they've got something's alive here, something's living, yeah. and, and there's a community of kids that are already ready for this. Um, so yeah, hopefully that pushed it over the line and just gave me a little edge over another author that didn't have you know 100,000 kids pretending to be purple octo cows every week on a, at school, you know. So, <laughs> and yes, if you can get to 100,000 kids, as Emma was saying, how does a publisher get children to discover their books? Um, if you've got direct access into classrooms, etc., that's a pretty powerful tool. Yeah, and then leverage that into sort of book sales. Um, Karen, to come on to you um, in terms of other players who weren't mentioned earlier, is that you've been doing some work with Bloomsbury, who have picked up a licence of like title, which again, uh, unlike uh, Zookeeper, does have a big platform, but it wasn't, people weren't biting their off. Do you want to talk a bit about what you're doing with them and The Deep? Yeah, so Bloomsbury bought The, the Deep, um, a licence from Technicolor, um, that is on Netflix and CBBC. Um, it's, it's the... The generators are based in Australia, but it's 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 done really well. Um, and so Bloomsbury came to me to help them um, turn um, the TV animation into a set of books. Um, so Technical had an incredibly detailed bible. I, I was so impressed by this bible. Um, but obviously they they weren't writers. They didn't work in publishing. And so I came on board to help turn that concept into a concept for a series of books. And then brainstormed and storylined the books and commissioned the writers, one of whom is, is here today, Dan Metcalf, who is an amazing writer. I highly recommend him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, take the moment. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I was kind of the creative pivot, in a way, between Bloomsbury and Technicolor and the authors. OK, uh, we'll come on to how TV story meets publishing story sort of like later. Um, and is that, uh, in your experience, a relatively standard way that actually that the publisher needs that kind of support? Because obviously there's got to be some creative transition between the TV narrative and the, and the publishing sort of like narrative. Are you mm. finding that's an increasing role that you're doing with Speckle Pen? Um, I don't. I've done it on a couple of occasions. Right. Um, I, in, I thought Bloomsbury were really clever because it was the first license that they've bought. So obviously this is a new process to them. I thought they were really clever to just shifts a lot of that creative work out to some... Because I have a lot of background in IP generation, so I'm very familiar with this way of working. 
I thought it was very clever of them to just get somebody to look after all of that while they strategize the series launch, the sales conferences, the covers, and all of that, um, knowing that they had somebody very experienced doing the, the kind of the writing side. Because there is an issue within publishers about bandwidth, as I have discovered, yeah. <laughs> uh, being on the inside, that actually the creative bandwidth to take on or even look and consider something like Night Zookeeper, which Ingrid sent to me, I did work for Bloomsbury for a while, etc., is that is a fundamental issue, I think, for publishers, is that the bandwidth to take on something new is, is generally quite small, and therefore it's a massive decision when you do go for something because you're producing a huge number of titles each year, and it's not, um, it's not that easy to bring in lots of, sort of new things because of the amount of creative energy it's going to take, let alone sales and marketing stuff. Angus, do you think that's fair? Uh, I do, actually. Uh, we have a slightly different acquisitions process from... Uh, what Ingrid described, <laughs> what you described, I can't remember yeah. one of you. Um, yeah. we, we sort of have a, a more all-hands-on-deck approach. We, every uh, book or project that comes to the house has to come to an acquisitions meeting. and We have sales and marketing and editorial uh, and often subrights and other departments in the room and they present the project and it's, it's a friendly meeting. It's not like you, know, you have to stand up and show your project and you're going to get peanuts thrown at you or something uh, if people don't like it. But we do Does generally... Some places. We do have, <laughs> well, we do have very frank conversations mm, yeah. um, in making those decisions as a group, and we really do want everybody on board or as many people, a sufficient sort of percentage of the room to feel confident that we can actually make a go of this project. So pretty selective um, in that respect, and we do discard things along the way, of course. Um, and uh, I think... I think that's, uh, it works really well for us. Um, and the other thing that is quite interesting that I'd like to mention is w part of our strategy is deciding what format the book should be in. Um, and that can be critical because we have certain retailers who, if we're buying an IP and we want to do several books against it, we want to produce certain formats that will feed into those channels. So, for example, Walmart like to have... Um, these six by nine readers. And so we're going to create a reader and know that Walmart is going to be the primary purchaser of that book. Or we may have an interactive novelty at a certain price point that is going to sell at Costco or Sam's Club. So we're very strategic about um, reworking IP and creating formats that are going to sell for us and that there's a need in the marketplace. Or with a lot of our customers, we do assortments. So we have. Um, some books in, uh, that are published with certain brands on them, and you want to add something to that assortment um, using the new IP. Okay. Uh, so, so. Um, briefly on this mm. one, is uh, Emma, in your opinion, the licensed publishing business essentially a preschool market? Is it predominantly that, or do you Not think... Not at all. Okay. Um, I, th I think it's challenging uh, when you get to the older end of things, because I think there's an element of which... Unless you're going fiction, uh, which is a great place to go when you when they get older, nobody really wants to be seen to be having a picture book <laughs> when they're over eight. So there are some brands that can reach beyond that. Star Wars is one, where we do incredible illustrated artwork to around Star Wars because that franchise can hold it. But if you just do movie tie-in for for with pictures, you down age it massively. So. There is lots of IPs that are six plus that you can develop incredibly interesting publishing, but it's expensive. So we did our Halo book, for example, Mythos. We had to commission 70 new pieces of art. And the only artists we were allowed to use were Halo endorsed artists. And they were used to being paid to making posters for the, mo for the for game releases. So it was a little bit tricky. <laughs> conversations, but we're a charitable organization. <laughs> did say that at one point. <laughs> I kid you not. How well did that go? <laughs> well, as you might well, say. But you know, so so the challenge is older I, older age means more expensive content. And one of the challenges you often have is you you might meet with someone, they might show you an incredible IP, and then you're sitting facing the fact that you're going might have to commission an author to write that. So they're wanting to sell you an IP. You're going to have to pay an author. <laughs> so you can see the challenge is cost. 
which is why preschool is attractive, because the TV show is enough. Right. In the context of TV, as opposed to film or video games, which uh, films often family, video games, Halo definitely skewing older, uh, is it then fair to say that within TV licensed publishing, it's primarily preschool that is driving that market? I don't see yes. much... Six to eleven comedy, much yeah. live action drama that's actually making it into quite life. tough. It's because uh, I mean, why is it tough though? Um, well, it's it's partly because the retailers haven't support uh, unless it was High School Musical when that was going bananas, um, and then you had lots of space in Smiths and and um, supermarkets. Um, it had to. It had to have already become, you know, a huge phenomenon before anybody would take on the fiction. Um, but interesting, we were just talking about Stranger Things. They've just done a publishing deal for that, and apparently it was a lot of money. Emma says, um, uh, Penguin have, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see. That's going to be fiction, obviously, uh, but I don't know whether it'll be original fiction or whether it'll be novelization type stuff but again you know you have to pay for an author you have to um you have to get through the approvals which are probably really difficult on something that's um your baby with netflix and their baby um and it, you know it, it's quite a tricky thing and then it's just you know it's a much smaller book yeah. um, it's not a and great big pink peppa pig that's on a shelf face out right um, so it will be, you know, those sales will be Amazon. Okay. Um, right, let's move on to what is the best way for anybody who's got an IP to be pitching it as a publishing sort of proposition to you? Um, Angus. Mm. <laughs> so I don't really have any hard and fast rules on this, though I will say that what we're looking for is story. Okay really good storytelling and strong characters. Um, and so a lot of stuff comes our way that's kind of superficial and doesn't have anything behind it. And we need, as publishers, we need opportunity. So not only is it the primary characters, but the secondary characters and things that we can build out. And it's great to have a partnership. So, it, you know, so often we just delivered something and here it is, it's done, make something of it. And we need to, because we're also narrative storytellers, we need to be able to create something with you. And I think that's really critical in the relationship. We like to partner with people who are going to allow us the freedom to build out and develop and be part of the creative process. Emma, does that resonate with you? Absolutely. So, Okay, if it does, the question is, what are, let's call them focus on TV people, TV producers. Mm. What are TV producers not getting then? Because if you've got a TV series and you've got 52 11-minute episodes or 52 fives, etc., and Angus is saying that there's something about the characters and the storytelling that isn't resonating, in the world of TV, they've clearly delivered characters that do resonate and stories, otherwise they wouldn't have got that commission. So I'm intrigued as to where that kind of mismatch or what it is that when you see story in their context that it isn't working for you, if you can shed any light as to, without going into that, I saw this show and that's why it didn't work for me. Yeah, so I would say that one of, I was saying to Ingrid earlier, so one of the things that is my pet horror is when someone pitches me their new TV show and they say, and the great news is the script has been written by so-and-so who writes for Fireman Sam, this person who used to write for Flower Tots, this person who writes for this show, this show, this show, that person who writes for that show, that show, that show. My heart just sinks. Because it means that there isn't an original person behind this show with a unique voice that this show is. So Pepper, the look of it, the voice of it, was one piece. Okay. And that's why it was uniquely wonderful. And so many times you get pitched a TV show that's been written by 15 different people and you just don't feel the heart is any one person's. Okay. So that I struggle with a little bit you also because get, we're writers. We're at yeah. heart, you know, that's what we want. So you're looking for script. a voice. You're kind of, you're looking for the auteur driven. You feel as though that's going to come through. And it has to have you something you It has to have an emotional yeah. connection as yeah. well. I mean, there are things that work really brilliantly on television. Slapstick adventures, you know, monkeys falling over things in jungles and running on and on and on. But there's no book there. There's no story. There's no... 
there's no... Well, you have to understand that, that the medium of television <coughs> is, is you're guided by the, what you're watching, whereas when you're reading a picture book, you need some pacing, you need, you need something that tells you that you've got to turn the page to find out what's coming next. And then so also something device. that the child actually connects, connects with, with emotionally, yeah. and, and that's yeah. what you have to have. So, for me, does that mean that sort of the producing side of the TV producing has some misconceptions about what it is that you're actually sort of Well, like that might be for? fine for television. Right. It might, you know... Um, um, People come all in those and they sla say... You know, all those slapstick kind of... Uh, what's the name of the cat chasing the mouse? Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Tom, Tom and Jerry. <laughs> you know, that's great TV. But it doesn't make a book. All right, so let's be devil's advocate then, because I would stake what my career is, which isn't much, but actually Paw Patrol <laughs> has been written in exactly that yeah, kind of way, right? And has Paw Patrol worked as a licensed It has been it hugely has. successful. Yeah. And, th and that is the thing. There's always the exception yeah. that proves the rule. <laughs> I would say that, yes, uh, there's usually... It feels as if every year there's a breakout hit. Um, and Paw Patrol absolutely hit like I mean it's something about dogs rescue it's kind of you know hero the, all the things that were coming through in research that preschoolers loved and that one show did all of that and yes even though it was written by a bunch of different writers in exactly the way I hate it's <laughs> not you know doesn't mean that it wasn't going to be a huge success and, and every and, show is the same and we bought the magazine rights because <laughs> right. we but I didn't buy the book rights because mm. I had that exact problem with it um, but I was like so magazines perfect Books, no. Okay. Uh, economically, was wrong. that a bad decision? Completely wrong. Okay. Well, good for you for admitting it. <laughs> oh, there's lots of those. <laughs> <laughs> Just buy me a drink and I'll tell you. Uh, you're going to be very drunk, buddy. <laughs> we want all the information. Um, Angus, when you, when you were talking to Liz at OUP yeah. about... Uh, sorry, Josh. Uh, Josh, Josh. Um, uh, the Night Zookeeper... That issue of who's writing it, where's the passion coming from, was that, what was your answer to that? How did you, how did they in, sort of interrogate you on that side of the arts of the IP? Well, I guess we were lucky because it was me. Mm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, I, 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 it's, it's, I don't write all of them now. Right. I couldn't manage my company and, and try and grow everything on the education side, but I'd written the book. I know the characters. I can be a bit fierce, but then they put me with uh, Karen, and I had my what I wanted it to be, and she was like, okay, but, you know, I know better than you on this. It should be, it should be this, 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 and I'm like, I'm like okay. You know, but as long as it, I never felt like um, it wasn't where I wanted it to be and where my heart was at, and I think the, the comments about true characters and true stories, like, it's because you push it a bit further, and I think the industry, my you know general touching of the industry for the last six years, is a bit adverse to risk, and there is a like this is how it works. This is this is how the story should be, and the weird thing about a creator is that you're probably bringing in a whole load of personal baggage, that actually makes it a bit unique. So the fact that like you're basing it on your gran, and your gran was this way, and you're like well. No, but she was this way, and it doesn't work to change it, because otherwise it would not be the, the thing that you're in love with and you're driving yourself. So it's that line between how does that work in a story that others will relate to whilst keeping those unique quirks of every individual human that is unique and quirky and has their bizarre uh, you know, baggage that they can bring through. And I think that's when... That's when beautiful things happen because that's when it's oh that's a human soul that's being laid bare on you know on on the page even if you know it's not necessarily my hand that's crafted the language that a kid will be able to understand um, and that was the problem with our self published when I kept on throwing in too many long words that I thought kids should know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Any examples? Oh, honestly, you just have to ask my so my my co-founder Paul is a primary school teacher and our creative director Buzz is 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 an amazing designer but incredibly dyslexic and every time I wrote anything they would look at me and go. Josh, they don't know that word. What are you doing <laughs> with that word? It, it, yeah, it's a bit of a running joke. But now, thankfully, OUP have taken that out of my hands. Oh, okay. Yeah. Karen, do you want to Yeah, I mean, it, it, just, it does so fundamentally come back to what we've said a lot, which is passion. And you can't fake passion. And when you're meeting people and you sense how passionately they believe in, in, in their project, that does make such a massive difference. And, and often when I'm judging who to work to... If I can't see that passion, I'm, I'm, I'm just never going to go there. And um, 
well, uh, yeah, so I'm working with a, some licensed owners called Scoo Crew at the moment, and like Josh, you can just see that they passionately believe in their idea, and that passion can carry you for years, and that's what carries through to the publishers, so that when they're walking into an acquisition meeting, um, you know, it's, it's a very strong and powerful emotion. Okay. Um, we're getting close to question time, so if you've got a question, be prepared to sort of put your hand up. Um, I wanted to ask, in terms of how competitive the market is, and there's now, you know, with, say, Ingrid and Karen, there's access to people who've got expertise. To Angus Nebbit, mm. is there a case for, uh, or would there be any difference if somebody created with expertise a proper publishing pitch, as opposed to what I'm guessing happens is they walk in with the TV Bible and a bunch of DVDs for you to watch. Is there a sense that actually there is a better way to pitch you something rather than going, here's the TV Bible which I sold the show off, here's a couple of scripts and there's a couple of episodes for you to watch. Does that make For me, no. Okay, I right. don't think it's worth it because um, we generally, I mean, the other thing we talked about people coming to us, actually a lot of the time we we're going we to them. them. Yes. So no one was ringing our doorbell going, do yeah. you want to come and see Minecraft? Right. Okay. We went to them, same with Roblox, same with and Stranger we, Things. You know, we were knocking on all those people's doors. No one was actually trying to pitch it to us. We were desperately trying to get them to pitch it. But we, you know, we, so there's that side of it. So we already have a vision for what we want to do. And actually, if someone comes to you with a very strong publishing Bible and says, well, we want this and we want this and we think this would work and that would work, sometimes it can be a bit off-putting because it's sort of, well, like you say, they probably haven't got any, they haven't got any of the real books that you need to have in the program right. to make it work financially for you. So then you're looking at a sort of what can feel like quite a demanding portfolio and it doesn't necessarily make you go, yes, we, if we can't see what the books should be, we shouldn't really be in this okay, industry. Right, that's your yeah. job. Um, does anybody have a question? Yeah, there's a few hands. Uh, lady here, because she's closer to the mic first. Gentleman second. Hi, yeah. Um, hello. Uh, my name is Chella Quint, and I do educational comedy. And I'm wondering if you could speak for a moment to um, comedy nonfiction books that start as the starting point that then lead into uh, in like interactive show content. So book first, non-fiction. These are literally neither of the things you mentioned. <laughs> but, but you're here and you know a lot of this stuff. That's horrid history, answering? isn't it, really? Exactly. Is there yeah. anything else like that that follows that model? And is that something that industry-wise there is scope for beyond horrible histories? If it's good, yes. Mm. <laughs> I mean, if you come up with a concept that, that is <laughs> funny and <laughs> then yes. Yeah. Generally for all of us, is there any advice? I don't think there's ever a kind of this category is a no-go. Right. That never works. You know, there's so many things mm -hmm. that stood mm -hmm. out in an area that was previously not done. I mean, Horrible Histories is a really yeah. good example yeah. of something that sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's it brilliant. Yeah. So I don't think there's any genre that any of us would say we will not right. look at this or we will not look at that. It is, is that thing, whatever it is, very good. And if it's but, very good, then we're interested. But that's going to be kind of essentially having a bit of a resurgence yeah. at the moment. Yeah. So that, Sorry. you yeah. know, non-fiction is having a bit of a resurgence at the moment. Yeah. So that could be an opportunity for you. So I mean, mm. I would say research your publishers and do a focused submission. I'm mean, not necessarily people who've already done what you want to do. So don't go to Scholastic right. because they've got but, but look at what kinds of things they have published to get a sense of where their interests lie. Well, there's, there's a non-fiction imprint called Ren and Rock, and um, one of their titles is number one on Amazon at the moment called You Are Awesome. And it's an amazing book, so you should definitely look at that. Gentlemen here, if you want to pass the mic down. Hand it down the row. Hi there, uh, I'm Jason from Mushku in Dublin. Hey, Josh. Uh, I'm kind of curious, um, actually, you know, having followed Josh's story over several years and uh, also you mentioned Becca's Bunch as well, in beyond just the editorial and the passion, what kind of practical risk management kind of checklists have you got for a new property? You know, if you've got a new IP that you may love, but it's like, as, as Josh says, where's the TV show or, you know, like, is the broadcaster right? You know, for something like Becca's Bunch, which hasn't yet launched, there's an element of risk there. Are there kind of 
practical guidelines of you've really got to have these things in place first before you before you even turn up to the door. So with Becca's, I just really, really loved it. They just yeah. pitched it, it to me. Plan? You know, they can pitch pretty right. much anything. They could pitch their dead grandmother, that <laughs> team. Um, and I'd probably buy it. It was just a really lovely show. I just loved it. Um, and they were talking to Nickelodeon and they were talking to other people. And so we just did a deal with them, which we came in very early for not much money, but with a guarantee to pursue it and publish it. And then everything has now started to come into place, which has been fantastic. Um, so that happens. So in terms of how early is early? So they what had, they got in place when you were going, I so love it. So they had a tiny, tiny little sizzly thing. Um, and they had an advert that had nothing to do with the sizzly thing. Um, and a name that then changed. And that was it. Wow. And so there's no platform in place. They were out. They were going to say, this is what we want to do. Yep. And you still went for it. Yep. It's pretty Go. unusual. Well, I was going to say, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's very unusual. Yeah. I mean, we don't hang our hats on the promise of entertainment media. If it's a good book, we're going to publish a good book. And it was um, very Yeah. And, and we have channels for selling books. You know, if it's a middle grade novel, you know, there are places we can, we can send it to build an audience and start building an audience way before anything happens in the entertainment space. And I but would say on that one, just to stop everyone sending their ideas before <laughs> they've got a TV <laughs> deal, say. Is, is on that one, yeah. I fully believed in their ability right. to get a broadcast platform. I mean, those are guys who were going to get the deal. It just wasn't actually signed. So my deal there was... Do I buy it for this today? And they can add that to their pitch right. to the broadcasters. We have Egmont on board mm -hmm. internationally. Or do I buy it for a hell of a lot more in six months? That was my... And compete with other publishers. And compete with it, other publishers. So yeah. that was my decision there. But I knew they would get a TV platform. So they weren't an unknown entity. Another, another thing just to mention, um, when I'm helping people with IP try to land publishing deals, um, publishers inevitably uh, are interested in the Star Guide. Um, and they want to know about, particularly if we're talking preschool and illustrative stuff, about what they call the assets. In other words, the illustration, the access, what is there? What is, because publishing eats up material in terms of generating books um, in the way that no other licensed category does. Um, and uh, you can, if you do a deal with somebody, but they can't provide you with the right materials, or they're difficult <laughs> about allowing you to try and create them, you know, obstructive in terms of approvals and stuff like that, that will kill um, the property. So publishers by now should be savvy enough to ask you those kind of questions. And you need to have thought about um, how you're going to deliver things to make it easy because you know publishers do not have infinite numbers of staff um, or infinitely deep pockets to recreate like this halo stuff um, and and so you have to make it viable and easy and also one of the things we get come across a lot don't we is that they a tv company might say oh, well we we've shot it all in digital each you know high resolution so that's going to be perfect for you no it's not you know, we need 300 DPI. <laughs> it's incredibly yeah. hard to print beautiful images unless you have incredibly high quality stills, which means then when they're making their TV show, they have to be taking shots all, all the, the way through so you can tell the whole narrative. Sometimes they say, oh, we've got these four shots from this episode. Well, that's <laughs> absolutely no use. <laughs> so there are some practical pieces of information that you need to know about before you, if you're wanting to get into publishing with your TV show, that you just need to th think through at the very yeah. beginning. Yeah. Okay. Any more questions? Any questions? Uh, we're running out of time, so we've got a very quick question from whoever gets the mic first. There you go. <laughs> she got it. Sorry. Hello. <laughs> Quick Hi, question. Um, my name is Leanne. I'm in uh, Cavalier in Dublin. Uh, we're an animation studio. And just to go back to your um, what you were saying about people saying, oh, this writer worked on this show, that show, um, would the idea trump that? So if they had a great idea that you really loved, would that trump, oh, they're using the same writers for this, that? Yes. 
Good. That was a quick yeah. question. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. <laughs> I knew there was a reason why I let you ask that question. Okay. Uh, I now have to read this out. It's mm. ten past twelve. It's probably last. It's probably twelve past twelve now. So lunch packs are available now in the showroom bar or cafe or hub space across the road on the upper level of the hubs. The lunch packs in the showroom cafe are intended for people attending lunchtime sessions here in the showroom, like our next session here in Cinema Two, out and proud or still under wraps at 12.40. The room needs to be cleared now as quickly as possible, so after you've said thank you to our fantastic panel, please can you get out?